Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter to you. I'm excited. Uh, my name is Rob, by the way, in case you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here, and I'm excited to share with you from the scriptures. We were just watching a video of how different individuals uh, responded to, to Jesus in their life, uh, and, and what you come to realize as you go uh, in church circles and you talk to people of faith is you come to realize that everyone comes to faith in different ways. There's different responses. In fact, the, the message that we're looking at this morning, I'm calling it the first responders because I'm uniquely interested this morning in looking at how faith developed within the first followers of Jesus. How did they come to believe that Jesus truly was resurrected? Now, I need you to do something with me this morning if this is going to work. I need you for just a moment to pretend or suspend your knowledge of the resurrection. Now, that's a hard ask, because a lot of us have heard about the resurrection account over and over and over again, year after year at Easter. Um, it's hard to imagine a world where there are not 2.3 billion Christians living within it. In fact, I would say to you that it's similarly difficult to envision a world today where there's not smartphones everywhere, right? It's really hard. Now, for some of the younger generation, they can't even think of a world where smartphones don't exist, where Siri doesn't sound off all the time. But it was only less than, what, 15 years ago when that first commercial came out with Apple and they were presenting this new technology that none of us had ever conceived of before? Now, I think this might be a good analogy as we think about how people began to believe in the resurrection. Let me ask you, if you were around when that commercial first hit, how quickly did you adopt smartphone technology into your life? Did you see the commercial and get on the wait list? Or did you think to yourself, you know, that looks really cool, but I'm going to wait for the price to come really down? Or maybe you thought to yourself, there's a lot of gimmicks in this phone. I mean, I've got a GPS in my car. I've got a calculator. What do I need with all of these apps anyway? And some of you are chuckling right now. And you're chuckling because you feel that flip phone that's sitting in your pocket. You never made the transition. Have you ever seen this graphic before? This graphic is called the change adoption curve, and it's a great tool. It helps us to understand how people adopt new changes, particularly in the area of technology. And as you ask yourself the question, how quickly did I adopt the iPhone or smartphones, you fall somewhere on this curve. The innovators are usually the smallest, and they're the individuals that knew about it before it was even published, before people were talking about it. Maybe they even had a beta sample of it. The early adopters are the waitlist individuals. The early majority said, I think that looks really neat, but I want to see someone else use it first before I pay that money. The late majority said, eh, I don't know. I'm skeptical. Let me wait and see. And of course, the laggers are the ones with the flip phone still. So, as we look at this story this morning, we're going to see that acceptance of the resurrection looks something like this, too. 
only there were not any innovators. No one came to Jesus' tomb saying, I'm expecting this thing to be empty because I know that he said that he's going to rise from the dead. In fact, as you look at the story in the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see after that horror-filled day on Friday that all of the followers of Jesus were disillusioned, depressed, shocked. They had this idea. They believed that they had hitched their wagons to the Messiah, and that would mean that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem and rule Israel and put down Roman oppression and spread the righteousness of God. So all of those hopes that they had attached to Jesus were nailed to the cross when he was nailed to the cross. So then, how did they start believing? Well, that's what I want us to see this morning. We're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 23, and we're going to follow a couple of his followers and see how each one responded to him. We pick up at verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb in stone where no one has ever been laid. Now let's stop there for a minute. Joseph of Arimathea, I would suggest to you, was a secret follower who goes public. If you look at John's Gospel, John chapter 19, it tells us Joseph was a secret follower of Jesus. He's like many people today who maybe from a distance admire the ministry of Jesus. They like the teaching of Jesus, but they've never really come out and told people, I'm with him. I'm following him. Now, what happened? What, what change happened in Joseph. Well, what we come to find out is that he is a member of that ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and that's the same Sanhedrin which has just tried Jesus and had Jesus crucified. So think about it. Think about what asking for the body of Jesus costs this guy. It costs him status, reputation, friendships, connections, future opportunities. So why does he do this? Well, listen to what Luke says about him. First, he calls him a good and righteous man. It means that Joseph was looking on at the atrocity of the trial, the mockery of a trial that Jesus was given, and he says within himself, clearly that was not right. Now, we get that as a culture. When we watch unjust things happen in broad daylight, we're not satisfied with that. We don't like that. Likewise, it also says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. So from the periphery or from a distance, he was seeing the ministry, he was hearing the teaching of Jesus, and it was penetrating into the depths of his soul. Now the Sabbath is about to begin. The Sabbath begins at 6 p.m., and you were not allowed to attend to a burial at this time. 
So Joseph has a limited amount of time, and he makes a very public decision. He goes right to the top. He has an encounter with Pilate. He asks for Jesus' corpse. He wraps the body in fine linens, and then he puts Jesus in a new tomb that he had purchased for his own family. Well, we don't know exactly what Joseph believed about Jesus at this point. We do know that this burial is extraordinary. In that same chapter of John, John 19, it tells us that he laid Jesus in the tomb with 100 pounds of spices. And the tomb that he lays him in was, again, one that he had purchased for his own family. And it's the kind of tomb that only the extremely rich could afford. In fact, as you're watching this whole scene, you're watching someone attend to the body like you would for royalty. Now, isn't that incredible? From birth to death, Jesus in the Bible was treated like a king. He received kingly gifts. He was buried like a king. Now, the Bible doesn't just say details just to say them. It's trying to tell us something about who this Jesus is. But what I find additionally incredible about this scene is what this single act of bravery does for the Christian world. You see, through this single act of bravery, we have one of the strongest pieces of testimony that Jesus rose again from the dead. We have the empty tomb. Back in this day, when someone was crucified, their body was just thrown into a mass burial site. That was where all of the criminals would go. Now, just imagine if that had happened to Jesus' body, if Joseph had remained a secret follower. Do you think that we would have as strong of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? By no means. Now, certainly some people would have said that they had seen his appearing, but you wouldn't have a physical location to go back to and to look at. Because of what Joseph did today, I can stand up with intellectual integrity and say to you, there is historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I want to say this. I've had dialogues with people over the years They're talking about the resurrection, and they say something along these lines. That's just a myth along with all the other myths that are out there. And I say right back to them, that's an intellectually lazy statement that you just made. Why? Well, because myths don't have physical locations. You could jump on a plane today. You could go to the land of Israel. You could set ground in one of two sites, one of which surely is the physical location where Jesus was buried. You see, myths don't have physical locations like that. Myths don't have historical accounts where people are asking the question, where's the body? That's why it's more than a myth, friends. That's why Joseph's single act of bravery gives us so much to work with today as we talk about the resurrection. Now, I want to take a look at some other followers of Jesus. You see, as Joseph is attending to Jesus' body, there are some onlookers. Look at verse 55. The text says, The woman who had come with him 
the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, let's stop there for just a minute and consider what's happening here. So, these are some righteous Jewish women. They're obeying the Sabbath. They're not going to attend to the body of Jesus until after the Sabbath is completed. And they come to the tomb prepared to anoint and, and put spices around the body of Jesus because the Jewish people did not embalm. So they would do this to prevent the dreadful smell of death that would come as the body decomposed. Now think about something for a moment. Are you noticing something as you watch how Joseph and these women attend to Jesus' body? Well, as I look at this, I see that they clearly didn't perceive the prophetic point of Psalm 16, which said, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Look at the scene, the spices, the ointments, the tomb, the fine linen. It all speaks to the fact that they're not expecting that. Their expectation was the natural steps of death to occur. They expected the, the body to decay, for the tomb to stink, for the decomposition to result in bones, and then those bones would be taken and placed into an ossuary box. Here's what we're seeing here, friends. There's no innovators within the first responders. No one patiently waiting for an empty tomb. In fact, as you pick up the story, it says in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 24, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, I think that Alistair Begg makes an incredible point concerning these three verses. It's a great observation. He, he says, as these women are walking to the tomb, their hearts are ruling their heads. And why do we say that? Well, they haven't thought through all of the details involved with preparing Jesus' body. In Mark 16, you, you find out that they realize it is walking to the tomb. One of the women says, how are we going to remove that stone from the tomb? You see what I'm saying here? These stones were thousands of pounds. How are these women going to move it? What did they need? They needed some strong, brave men. Strong, brave men. Brave men who are all hiding right now. Hiding. Well, the strong, brave, courageous, diligent, faithful, 
women are going to the tomb to honor the body of Jesus. If you've ever lived around this city, you probably have seen the absurdity of that sign that's in a construction site that says, men at work, and you look at the construction site, and you see all the equipment and all the rubble of the ground, but you don't see any men for miles. I I remember growing up on the south side of Chicago, and there was a union strike, and for over a year, no men at the construction site. You had to go every which way to get around this one road, which happened to be a main street in our village. That's just how the tomb was. No men. Nowhere to be seen. But these strong, faithful women are attending to the body of Jesus And much to their surprise, as they pull up to the scene, the stone is rolled away. They crawl into the tomb. There's no body, just linen cloth. And then they meet two strangers. Let's pick up at verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, these two figures are angels. Uh, We we read this later in verse 23. We also look at their apparel, and any time the Bible says that someone was wearing dazzling apparel, it's insinuating that they are an angel. And so they ask them this question of rebuke. Why are you coming here expecting to find a body right now? Don't you remember the Old Testament scriptures? It's all over the place there. Don't you remember the words that Jesus actually said? In fact, as you look through this gospel, Luke's gospel, three times Jesus predicts, I'm going to die, it's going to be a mockery of a trial, and I'm going to raise again on the third day. Luke 9.22 is one of those instances. He has just asked the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter brilliantly comes out with the answer. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then two seconds later, Peter botches it all because Jesus tells him this, that I'm going to be tried and crucified and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus. That's not how things go down. You're you're not the type of person that dies. You need to stay alive because all of our hopes are attached to you. Now, it's interesting as you think about those responses to consider this. Many of us today assume that ancient people like these disciples, like these women, that they're just this bunch of uneducated rabble, these country bumpkins that just accept things like resurrections. I mean, you could go and tell them anything mystical and they would just, you know, immediately absorb it in their worldview. And then we somewhat arrogantly say uh, of ourselves today, well, not us though. I mean, we have hundreds of years of science and exploration. We know for certain that dead people remain dead. But here's the thing. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that this modern way of understanding the past of ancient people's views is ridiculous. He argues the historical evidence was massive 
and the conclusion universally drawn, whenever resurrection is mentioned, the answer is a firm negative. We know that doesn't happen. You want me to translate that for you? They expected dead people to stay dead. It's true. They did. They didn't need science and hundreds of years of it to tell them something that they experienced over and over and over again. They saw hundreds and hundreds of people die, and none of them ever rose again from the dead. So that's why their eyes are glazed over when Jesus is saying, I'm going to rise again from the dead. They're saying, he's telling us another one of those brain-teasing parables right now. Only it wasn't a brain-teasing parable. And that's why the angel says to the women, remember. Remember the word of God. Remember what Jesus said. He meant it. He truly did rise from the dead. He wasn't just speaking to you in allegory and parables. And when they hear those words, the word of God these women become the first responders in the Bible to the resurrection. It's incredible. Now, the disciples, they're noticeably skeptical, and we see that in verses 8 through 11. The text says, And they remembered his words. In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Isn't it amazing that the closest followers, the first followers of Jesus were also the first skeptics of the resurrection. What did they say of these women? Well, they said of them that this was just female hysterica, uh, hysteria, silly talk. Uh, they're just, you know, babbling on. That's what they said to them. Now, this story reads true because of how embarrassing it all was for the early church. Okay? Think about the role someone like a press secretary for a world leader. Now, how do they present things on behalf of that leader? And think of Luke as doing that in these Gospels. He's trying to convince us, he's trying to persuade us that Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, how do you go about doing that? Well, press secretaries don't say embarrassing things about the world leader. They don't do that. You, you do not build religious propaganda by telling details like this. You don't build a new cult by saying, hey guys, here's a bunch of unconvinced followers. In fact, they were the first followers, but they're not really with it. They don't understand any of it. And it's really, you know, not something that I agree with today, but it was really true of this time period that the testimony of a woman wasn't even admissible in court. So if you're writing this propaganda to these people in this day, you certainly don't have a woman being the first witness to the resurrection. So why does Luke tell us all of these things? Well, here's why. 
The reason Luke wrote these embarrassing details in this account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is because this is the way it really happened. It went down just like this. The disciples were the late majority. They were skeptical initially. They needed to see far more to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. These women, they are the early adopters. They're the first on the scene, and they're the first to believe. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, why are all of these women with it while the men are lagging behind? And don't say that's because that's how it always is. No. Dorothy Sayers perceptively said this, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who never had an ax to grind, no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Listen. That notion today that Jesus and Christianity is bad for women is so wrong. So far askew of how Jesus treated women according to the Scripture. So far askew of the fact that the Bible right here is presenting the women as the heroes. So far askew of history which showed the first church exploding primarily because of women being empowered and elevated and giving real dignity. The reason these women's hearts are leading their head to the tomb is because no one had ever shown them love and validation like Jesus. Now let's look at one more response. Peter responds differently than the other disciples. Notice he hears about the resurrection, and as incredulous as it all sounds to him, he does something different. Look at verse 12. It says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had just happened. Now, I just love this response because Peter's a lot like us. It is hard to incorporate something like the resurrection into our belief system. And Peter's with everyone else. He's like, could this really have happened? Are you serious? He rose from the dead? But instead of just outright dismissal, which again, I would tell you that is intellectually lazy, Peter runs to the tomb. He examines. 
He crawls into the tomb just like those women crawled into the tomb. He sees the space empty. He sees the fine linen cloth. And then the text says that he walked away marveling, or you could translate it, he was wondering about it all. Could this be real? Could Jesus have really risen from the dead? You know what he's doing there? He's opening himself up to the possibilities. You see, friends, that's the first step of faith. The first step of faith requires that you and I at least be open to the possibilities. Because if I'm not open to the possibilities, then I'm just denying. But if I'm open to the possibilities, then I can explore I can go to the tomb and I can examine the tomb. And beyond the tomb, Scripture tells us that there's more historical record, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people and he appeared in all kinds of different locations at various times in various settings, like in the countryside, in the city. He appeared in the morning and in the evening. Sometimes he physically ate food with people. Sometimes he just arrived on the scene just magically in the middle of the room. He just appeared. We see all of these different instances where Jesus, physically was present with people. Now, the point of all of that is that there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world today, not because this reads like other myths, but because there's an empty tomb. And he appeared to people. And people remained open to the possibilities, and that led them to believe that this must have really happened. Now get this. More than anything, the resurrection is an invitation. It's an invitation to faith. Jesus didn't come, die on the cross, rise again from the dead, and then demand that you follow him. He left a trail of evidence, a trail of invitations. Come look at the tomb. Come have some conversations with people that physically interacted with me after the resurrection. Come and see that I have risen from the dead. And here we see that happening, don't we? We see an empty tomb. We see women who are remembering and Peter who is marveling. And then what happens? They come to believe and their lives are dramatically changed as you go on to read the rest of the story. You see, this is where it becomes very personal to us. Because the same invitation that was given to these first responders is given to you and to me today. To examine the empty tomb. To look at the historical record. To be wowed by the changed lives of the first followers and then come to realize that the resurrection offers you the same life change today. If, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again from the dead. In fact, I'd asked you guys, I'd given you these little cards that said, please wait to open. Can I ask you to pull those out right now? Thank you for not opening them early. You did well. I know how hard it is. It's like Christmas morning, right? Now, as you open these up, 
These are invitations. Invitations. And I believe, just as we saw with these first responders, that each one of us is at a different place in our faith journey right now. The first invitation is an invitation to those of you who say, I have questions. Maybe this morning you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm open to ability. That's good. Keep exploring. There's a QR code in the back of this invitation. And if you follow that QR code sometime today, maybe when you get a quiet moment and you just want to examine more about faith, there's a website that's just titled, What If? What if it's real? Go check it out. Learn more. And if you have more questions beyond that, you can always meet with me. We can talk. I'd be happy to do that. There's another invitation in here, and, and this one says, I'm ready to follow Jesus. Maybe you're beyond the possibilities now, and you're just saying, you know, this rings true to my ear and to my heart. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again from the dead. Well, friend, if that's you today, welcome to the family of faith. You've trusted Jesus, you're a Christian, and now it's about journeying with him and growing in him. Or maybe you're saying, I'm ready to follow Jesus, and, and what that means for you is, I trusted Jesus at some point in my life, but I haven't been walking with him. I'm ready to reignite that walk. Well, that same invitation is there for you today, too. Finally, I love this last one too. It's, I want to share what he has given me. You're like the women at the tomb. You love Jesus. He's changed your life. He's elevated your position. And you just want to give more to him. You see, as Josiah and the team come forward and they lead us in our last song, we have these three invitations because every time we sit and we hear the gospel preached, each one of us can make a response to it. That's what God wants. He wants your next yes said to him. So as you look at these three invitations, I want to encourage you to personalize it. How can you do that? Take the one that represents where you're at today home with you and keep going forward in the life of faith. Let me pray for you as you're making that decision and as we sing together a last song. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the story of the resurrection and how it demonstrates to us the fact that you came to save us from the tyranny of sin to, so that we could have new life, even eternal life in you. The, the resurrection is the, the center of the Christian message. It's the center of the story of the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus rose again from the dead. And in that simple statement, we can believe, we can be saved because of what you did. We're so grateful for you, and we want to continue in our journey of faith. In your name we pray. Amen.